we are bringing together imperfect people in pursuit of a whole life. Welcome to the Pathfinder Church Message Podcast. This week, Pastor Doug Moss shares his message from the series, Always, Always, entitled, Before. We've been planning this series for a long time, and as we were developing it over the months, the working title was actually Safe. Because the felt need that we're trying to engage with is that the world is so dangerous and messy. And so what does it mean for us to have a God who who claims to protect us, who claims to keep us safe in the face of everything that's going on? As you saw, even in that video, just globally, there's so much. There's climate change and inflation. There's polarization and pollution. There's war and rumors of war. But even personally... There's so much going on. We're facing cancer and divorce and loss, fractured relationships, increasing isolation and persecution. There's so much going on. How can we possibly be safe? The great poet W.B. Yeats, he described this same position that we find ourselves in today in the words of his poem, The Second Coming. He said, turning and turning in the widening gyre, the falcon cannot hear the falconer. Things fall apart. The center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. The blood-dimmed tide is loosed. And everywhere, the ceremony of innocence is drowned. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. Surely some revelation is at hand. Surely the second coming is at hand. The second coming... Hardly are those words out when my vast image out of spiritus mundi troubles my sight. Somewhere in sands of the desert, a shape with lion body and the head of a man, a gaze vast and pitiless as the sun is moving its slow thighs, while all about it real shadows of the indignant desert birds. The darkness drops again, but, but now I know that 20 centuries of stony sleep were vexed to nightmare by a rocking cradle. And what rough beast, its hour come round at last, slouches towards Bethlehem to be born. Yeats wrote those words 100 years ago in the aftermath of World War I. And seeing how how awful the horrors of that war were, the the evil that was exposed. And it got so bad that the age was saying, surely this is the moment where Christ is going to come back. And yet the poem concludes that God's not coming back. There's not a rescue from this place that we've put ourselves in. Instead, there's just some rough beast, the consolidated evils of humanity slouching its way towards Bethlehem instead of God. And I suspect that those words resonate with us emotionally still now today, a hundred years later, that we see all of these things going wrong. And what's sad and burdensome about this is that Yeats makes clear in the poem who he thinks is responsible for all of this evil, all of the atrocities, everything bad that's going on in the world. And you might have caught it, but in case you didn't, 
this is the line. He says, why is all this happening? Why is anarchy being loosed on the world? Why is innocence being drowned in waves of blood? Because the best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. See, Yates is saying it's human beings' fault. It's our fault. We're the problem. That one way or another, everything that's gone wrong in the world is the result of our action or inaction. That either you're one of the good people, but you lack the sincerity of your convictions to actually follow through with action, or it never seems like the bad people struggle with that. The evil people are happy to wreak havoc on the world, but the good stand by. See, Yates is saying at the end of the day, one way or another, you and I are part of the problem because we are either maybe unknowingly, in the camp of evil people doing evil things, or we are in the camp of good people who are not doing enough to stop the evil ones. It's a lot of pressure, Yates. <laughs> like, thanks for that. It's a really gloomy and anxious place to live, this idea that it's all falling apart and there's nothing we can do because it's all on our shoulders and we are not up to the task. But it's not the only interpretation possible of what's going on in the world 100 years ago or today. In fact, there's a, another poem that describes a very similar thing as what Yeats was describing. It describes the, the, the evil and the tragedy and, and the senselessness of the world. But this poem is a little bit older than Yeats's. Uh, this poem is 3,500 years old. In fact, it's one of the oldest poems ever written down. Uh, but you and I don't know it by, by that term, but we, we know it by a different name. We know it as Psalm 90, uh, which is a collection. The book of Psalms has 150 poems and prayers in it. And Psalm 90 is the first one. Why it's not Psalm number one, I don't know. But they, they put it at 90 for whatever reason. But, but this is a psalm. It's attributed to Moses. And they believe Moses wrote this poem 3,500 years ago. And so let's look at the psalmist's description of this thing that Yeats was describing as well. Psalm 90. You are God. You turn people back to dust, saying, return to dust, you mortals. For you, a thousand years are as a passing day, as brief as a few night hours. You sweep people away like dreams that disappear. They are like grass that springs up in the morning. In the morning, it blooms and flourishes, but by evening, it is dry and withered. We wither beneath your anger. We are overwhelmed by your fury. You spread out our sins before you, our secret sins, and you see them all. We live our lives beneath your wrath, ending our years with a groan. Seventy years are given to us, some even live to eighty. But even the best years are filled with pain and trouble. Soon they disappear, and we fly away. Who can comprehend the power of your anger? Your wrath is as awesome as the fear you deserve. Psalm 90. Now, the poet here is saying, actually, it's not so much on us that the world's bad. It's not because good people fail to do enough or evil people have their way. The psalmist says, this is all on God's shoulders. 
God's the one with might and power. God's the one who, who scorches us with his wrath. We are nothing in comparison. We're like grass that grows up and withers. We're like a dream that you've forgotten by the time you wake up. And so therefore, the, the, the problems in the world, all of these hard things, at the end of the day, they're not, they're not for us to blame ourselves or feel anxious or beat ourselves up about. At the end of the day, it's, it's God. And God doesn't really seem to be using his power well. He's using it to spread us out, using it to put us in our place. And, and either one of those perspectives is pretty troubling, <laughs> Because one way or another, what it's saying is that the world is beyond us and evil and hardship and suffering are going to happen no matter what we do. But I actually think there's a different interpretation that makes sense of both Yeats's poem and this biblical scripture. And it's what I want to share with you about today. You see, we were looking at this passage this week. If you don't know, the pastors have a weekly Bible study and, and people that just want to join us and talk about the, the, that week's Bible passage for the sermon uh, can join us. Uh, it's 6 a.m., which is why not that many people join us, but they do. And we were talking about this passage this last week, and one of the people there, Amy Calzada, was reflecting on this, and she said, you know, honestly, I don't really relate to this. This psalmist is talking about how hard life is, how awful things are around, and he's saying it's all on God's shoulders, and it's all God doing it to us. And she says, I, I don't really truly feel that way. I'm not going through my life thinking that, that God is the one that's smiting me or that, that's bringing hardship into my life. And, and she's a God-fearing, God-following, faithful person. And she says, but I don't really attribute it to God. When I look at the things going on in the world, I, I just think it's because people are, are broken and sinful and, and evil. And if I've got things going wrong in my life, it's because I've probably messed up or made a mistake or let my sin drive something. That she's saying, I don't even really resonate with where the psalmist is coming from. It doesn't seem to match my experience. And I've been thinking about her words ever since she shared them. We talked about it in the group and I've thought about it since. And I think she's right. I don't resonate with this. This doesn't feel as emotionally true to me as the poem, The Second Coming. And I think there are a few reasons for that. And so that's, that's what's going to drive our understanding of this. And the first is this, that the psalmist, I think in a very real way, was coming at this problem with a vastly different perspective than you and I have today. You see, the psalmist understood a, a core truth of Christian teaching, that, that this has been a fundamental part of Christianity uh, and Judaism as far back as the dawn of, of creation, that our God has certain attributes, that God is omnipotent and omnipresent. That means he has all the power in the world, and he's in all the places of the world. There's no place that God is not, and there's nothing that God cannot do. And that fundamental understanding dictated how everyone in the Bible saw the world and how they described it. Let me kind of put it this way. Think of it like a chart, right? So if God, if we're looking at the actual power that someone has and, and the, the perception of power that they have, God is all the way up here in the upper right. He has all the power and he knows he has all the power because he can be in all the places uh, to do it. God, God is up here. And human beings, we're down here. Compared to God, we have no power. We have no permanence. We're not in, in a bunch of places at once. We're limited by our very existence that we're down here. And so, of course, it makes sense that the psalmist, when he's reflecting on the evils and ills of the world, he says, well, it's on God. God's the one that's got all the power. He's omnipresent. He's omnipotent. It's all on God. We are just nothing. We are chaff. 
But we are not in the same position as human beings as we were 3,500 years ago. Those people were shockingly primitive. I mean, to make fire, they were still like having to strike two stones together, right? And, and, and over the course of 3,500 years, human beings have gained a lot in power. We, we've developed electricity. We, we, don't longer, we don't have to live on campfires anymore. We, we, we've built weapons. We have control our, over our environment. We have agriculture and, and irrigation. And, and little by little, over the course of the centuries and the millennia, we've gained in power. And so far, there's nothing wrong with that. As long as our gain in power is matched with reality, that the power that we've actually gained equals the power we think that we've gained, our perceived power, then we can actually still stay in the sweet spot, this divine perspective that God's all the way up here and we're just somewhere down here. We certainly can't compare to God, but we have some power and some accurate perception of that power. And that's okay. That's what humans do. That's the development uh, of, of human history, that, that the power has increased along with our perception of the power up to the weapons that we have. And, and Yates was confronted with mustard gas and all the toxic uh, things of that in World War I and the nuclear bomb in World War II. Our power has increased. And as long as our perception matches it, we're in an okay place. But here's the problem. I think that we are generally not matching our actual power to our perceived power. I think that actually the power got real high for a while, but for the last few years, certainly the last couple of decades, our perception of power has outpaced our actual power. Here's what I mean by this, that for a long time, even though we had power and we had weapons and we developed all these things, our presence was unlike God. Our presence was limited. You and I could only be in one place at a time. And so we, we didn't have this screwed up perception of how much power we had, but lately... We can be in a lot of places at once. I can pick up a phone in my pocket and be talking to someone in Thailand instantaneously. Or or I have the internet constantly popping up headlines and and, and feeds. My attention is all around the world at any given moment as I'm getting headlines from the war in Ukraine and and hearing about the crises that are going on in our country. And, And so my attention is everywhere. I can be sitting on the couch with my wife trying to wind down at the end of a night, watch a movie or a show together, but my email is popping up. And so I might physically be on the couch, but my attention is at work and trying to figure out everything that goes on. And you and I, all of us, in a way that has never been in human history, can be in more places at once. We have this illusion of a God-like omnipresence that we think that we're everywhere. And if we think that we're everywhere, then we think we should be able to do something with all of that presence. If my attention is over here and and caught over there and I'm thinking about this and talking with that person there, we we think that we can actually have power in all those fears. And here's the problem, we can't. And so when our perceived power outpaces our actual power, then we fall out of the divine sweet spot and we land in a place that I call anxiety. All these things I should be paying attention to. All these things I should be doing. And yet I just can't keep up with it. I don't have enough actual power to keep up with the things that my attention is on. And when we fall out of that, we land in this place of anxiety. And if this isn't tracking for you yet, I suspect maybe it will be. Because I know what's coming in about a month. We got Thanksgiving coming up. And immediately following Thanksgiving is Giving Tuesday. And I don't know about your email or your mail, but on Giving Tuesday is when I get all of the entreaties from all of the amazing nonprofit organizations 
who reach out to me and they say, we're doing such important work and we can't do it unless we get you supporting us. And they all want my donation. They all want my support. And while my attention is greater than it's ever been, my bank account is still quite limited. And I can't, I I can't make the difference in all the organizations that will seemingly crumble and flounder without my support, without my help. It's an incredibly anxious place to live. And I'll just tell you, this is the side that I tend to fall off more often than not, is that my perception of how much power I have because of my increased awareness outpaces what actual power I have to make a difference in the world. And so I live in a lot of overwhelmingness and anxiousness. But not everybody falls off in that direction. Some people, it goes the other way, that we actually don't realize how much power we have. We have power as human beings, but we think that it's far less than what we actually need uh, to be able to accomplish things in our life. And when you fall off this way, you land in a place that I call despair. This is where Yates lived. This is what he's describing. He's saying that, that we have mustard gas, we're gonna have nuclear bombs, we have power to do all these things, and yet I can't actually make a difference. And yet I, I can't stop this, this slouching beast of human evil from, from doing what it's gonna do in the world, this spiritus mundi. I might have power, I might have weapons, we might have all this stuff, it's not enough. And the perception of power is less. And so then you will resort to fatalism and despair. And so I I believe that many of us live in one or both of these areas far more often than any of us are able to find this divine sweet spot, this place where our actual power matches our perception of power. And it is my belief that a real issue with the world that does not feel safe anymore is not actually because of the objective evil or danger that's going on in the world. It's not because uh, the world has gotten so much worse than it ever used to be. The world used to be a kinder, safer place. And now with, with weapons and wars and pandemics, the world is worse. I think the world is exactly the same as it's always been but we're able to perceive far more of it than we ever were before with a never-ending news cycle and online internet that that lets us be aware of everything that's going on. Uh, And and as a result, we we fall off in one of these two camps. See, what I think we have is not actually a crappiness of the world problem. I think we have a wrong perspective problem. I think that's why things feel so dangerous to us. Not the objective measure of it, but our perspective of it. And I'm joined in that belief by some, some interesting and I think noteworthy and reliable people. Sean Aker is a Harvard-trained psychologist and sociologist, uh, and he did studies for years. And he came to this conclusion after all the studies. He says, 90% of our long-term happiness is predicted not by the external world. I want to say that again. 90% of your long-term happiness is not predicted by the external world. We think it is. And this is what he went into the study uh, assuming. This is what he was testing. That we think your external circumstances drive how peaceful or satisfied or safe you feel. That if you've had awful tragedies, if loved ones have died, if you've lost your job, if you're living mouth to mouth and you have no, no stability in your home, that you will therefore be more miserable. 
And on the flip side, if you're successful and you have a good job and a vocation and plenty of wealth and fame and all these things, that you will therefore be more joyful. And the fact is, and he proved it over and over again, that's not how it works. It's not how it works. That our external circumstances drive only 10% of our relative satisfaction in life. 90% of it is driven not by the external world, but by the way your brain processes the world. It's not necessarily the reality that shapes us, but it's the lens through which your brain views the world that shapes your reality. He's saying we have a perspective problem and that that's the thing that we can change. And that's the thing that, that can shift how we feel in this world as dangerous and messy as it is. And he's not just some weirdo, you know, newfangled Ivy League uh, scientist that thinks he's discovered something unique and new. This is actually ancient wisdom that he's just proven with modern sociological techniques. This goes all the way back 2,000 years to the Stoic philosophers. These are people that are some of the wisest people in human history, and, and their, their beliefs still resonate today. People today embrace what the Stoics figured out and taught. And I'll just quote one of them, but they all have quotes about this. Epictetus said, what really frightens and dismays us is not external events themselves, but the way in which we think about them. It is not things that disturb us, but our interpretation of their significance. 2,000 years ago, they figured this out. That if, if we think that the world is an objectively good or bad place, an objectively scary or safe place, and then that's what drives our own feelings of satisfaction and safety, we've got it backwards. Believe it or not, Epictetus and Sean Aker are saying, you decide to be safe first, and then you'll be safe. You decide to be happy first, and then you'll be happy. And on the flip side, we decide to be anxious or despairing or fatalistic first. And then we look for the external circumstances in the world to confirm that pre-existing bias. We don't have a, a crappiness of the world problem. We have a perspective problem. And that's why the Bible is so beautiful and helpful because Psalm 90, I only read to you an excerpt of it. I want to read the rest of it to you now because Psalm 90 gives perspective. That's the solution that the psalmist offers us is that there is a perspective that can change our life for the better. And here's what he writes. Lord, through all the generations, you have been our home before the mountains were born, before you gave birth to the earth and the world, from beginning to end, you are God. And yes, we are temporary. We're like grass. We're like dreams. But God, teach us to realize the brevity of life so that we may grow in wisdom. Oh Lord, come back to us. How long will you delay Take pity on your servants. Satisfy us each morning with your unfailing love so that we may sing for joy to the end of our lives. Give us gladness in proportion to our former misery. Replace the evil years with good years. Let us, your servants, see you work again. Let our children see your glory and may the Lord our God show us his kindness and delight 
and make our efforts successful. Yes, make our efforts successful. You see, in the midst of this reflection there that we are far less powerful than God is this bigger one. But what that means is that he's the one anchoring our story. He is the frame of our own understanding of the world and our own lives. You see, the point of Psalm 90 is that you and I have a God who is before us and for us. That he is eternal. He is before all things that we've ever experienced. And all the hardships and struggles of life, he was around before they were. And not only that, his his posture, his attitude is that he wants nothing but the best for us. He has an unfailing love that drives his actions. That the the way for you and I to have a perspective check, to correct an unhealthy, uh, negative, negative, despairing perspective is to just recognize that God is before and for. And so let's look again at the chart and and see how this can change where we dwell and how we can find our way into that sweet spot of God. So let's zoom way down into this lower corner of the thing that, that no human beings are anywhere near the top of this chart. Think of the most powerful people who've ever been, generals and, and emperors and dictators, and even they, like, the, the highest they're going to get is here. Nothing compares to the power of God. And that all of us are ultimately just clustered somewhere down here in, in, in this lower left corner of this chart. We do not compare to the God who is before us. Our, our perceived power needs to be less than, than, than what God does because our actual power is far less than what God does. And then the psalmist actually gives us a hint. So if you and I were dwelling in these places, we're in anxiety or despair, how do we get out of it? How do we find our way back into this sweet spot of the divine perspective on life? He actually gives us the answer in verse 12. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Now I've shared this before. I am a huge proponent of Christians memorizing Bible verses. There is no better or more powerful way to transform your heart and your mind than by committing scripture to memory and letting it become just a part of your your daily thoughts and your mantras, something that you know so well because you've memorized it. And if that appeals to you and you want to see that kind of power unlocked in your life, then this week, start with Psalm 90, 12. Start with this one, just this one verse. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. You see, God's telling us what to do. It's not just lamenting and saying how awful everything is and how how short our lives are. God's saying, actually, this is the, the key. This is the answer to shifting your perspective. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. So so here's what that means to me. Here's how I make this make sense in a way that that's pretty powerful. And it's this, that if we think again about this chart, that you and I have almost no ability to change where we are on this axis. We can't really increase our power very much. Whatever you were born into, whatever class or caste uh, or, or socioeconomic status level that you were born at, that, that's where you are. And you can maybe try to increase your power a little bit. You can try to be more wealthy or more successful, but, but the fact is you're gonna be within a pretty narrow bar of what you can do about your power. You can't really increase or decrease your level of power in the world. But you can absolutely change your perceived power. You can absolutely change your perspective about the power that you already have. 
And that's what Psalm 90.12 is saying. It's saying, teach us to number our days. Teach us to change our perceived level of power so that we may gain the heart of wisdom. Here's what I think it means. That I'm over here in anxiety and feeling like there's so much I should be doing in the world. So many places clamoring for my attention and my intervention and my ability to make a difference. And it's way more than what actual power I have. And so instead of trying to increase my power so that I'm not anxious anymore, what if I just admit that I don't have as much power as I thought? What if I just grapple with the truth that I've got 70 or 80 years and there's only so much any one of us can accomplish in 70 or 80 years, certainly compared to a God who has been in existence for all eternity, whose interaction with, with human, humanity goes back millennia. And I got 70 or 80 years? You know what, God, you're right. I probably can't do that much. I can't do as much as I think I should. And so maybe I can lay some burdens down. Maybe I can let some organizations not get donated to. Maybe I I can rightly correct my perceived level of power to the accurate spot of actual power that I have. Teach me to number my days so I'm making a heart of wisdom. But it goes the other way too. See, for those of us that are in this side of despair where where we have power, but we don't really believe we do, that then hear this word from God too, teach you to number your days. You've been blessed, gifted by God with 70 or 80 years to live a life of meaning and purpose. And that God didn't put you here to to give you a spirit of fear or timidity. He didn't put you here to, to feel like a victim that is powerless against the forces against you. But the fact is whatever life you're living God's given you exactly the time that you need to carve out a life of meaning and purpose. Number your days and know that you've been given 70 or 80 years to do something meaningful and worthwhile, to carve out a life that that makes sense, that has redemption, and that you are never without power. You are never lost. You are never in a situation that God has not seen and that he can't bring you out of. That's how we start to change our perspective and find that biblical sweet spot that brings us joy and delight. And so what helps us with that? What helps us number our days and stay in this green spot? Well, the psalmist gives us a hint there too. He says in verse 16, let us, your servants, see your work again. Let our children see your glory. See, what he's saying is right now, things feel pretty rough. I feel like just I'm laid out, scorching in the sun, and yet remind me that you used to work glory in my life, that you used to show up in power, and that if you could show up in power before, you can show up in power again. And that means that that we then have an obligation to, to tell our children those stories, to keep their eyes and ours focused on this God who has shown up in glory throughout all of human history. That before whatever struggle you or I are facing right now, he was there. And God's power has been mighty through all of it. God has done amazing works over and over again. And even if we're not feeling or seeing them in this moment, we can remember the ones he did before. 
You see, ultimately, the way you and I stay in the sweet spot, the way we live here in the place of joy and peace instead of anxiety and despair is that we have to be storytellers. We have to be people of folklore. We have to be able to tell ourselves, our peers, our children, all of the ways that God did mighty things before so that we can have the trust and the confidence that he will do mighty things again. So let me tell you some stories right now as we wrap up. Let me remind you that over the course of human history, God's people have been attacked and threatened and people try to wipe them out for all of recorded history. And yet over and over again, God has rescued his people. He's kept them together through famines and wars and turmoil. Our God has always had the power to protect his people, even from the greatest empires in history. Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome, all of them have crumbled and God's people continue strong to this day because here we are. And let me tell you this story, that 2,000 years ago, God chose to enter into human, humanity and human history himself. He became a man and showed us that he has power over all things, that he has power over demons and diseases, that he's conquered the physical laws of the universe and conquered even death itself. And Jesus didn't leave us hanging. He didn't say, oh yeah, this is just a random fluke that I'm here and I can do all of these powerful miracles and that I can promise you salvation from death itself because Jesus rooted himself in this preposition of God even as the people questioned him and were trying to figure out who he was. He said, you wanna know who I am? Before Abraham was, I am. Jesus walked the earth for a few short decades, and yet he claimed to have been before all things. This was God himself walking on earth, rescuing us from death. Well, let me tell you this story. 500 years ago, Reformation weekend that we're celebrating, the church had lost its stories, that they believed that God was not for them, that there was no salvation in the name of Jesus, but only suffering and futile efforts on behalf of humankind. The entire church had become a place of anxiety and despair because their perception of power had gotten totally out of whack with what God had promised them. And Martin Luther came and reminded them, he said, Jesus died for you and his power is enough for you. And you don't have to try to perceive that you have more than you really do or fear that you have less than what you need because Christ has done it all. Or let me tell you this story. 40 years ago, there was a man and a woman who were on paths of darkness and anxiety and despair. But they found Jesus and they found each other. And so they committed to starting a new family, a family that would be rooted in a God who had found them even when they had spent their whole lives running away from them. And so they had two kids that they raised in faith, two kids that grew up knowing that God had already rescued their family. And as a result, I've now had 40 years of knowing that God was before my story. And so there's been no crisis, no catastrophe that I've had to face that I wasn't rock certain that God wouldn't rescue my parents from dead end lives just to let me fail now. 
because God has gone before, I can be bold and live a life of courageous witness, trusting that he will do his mighty works again and again and again. And so now I want to declare to you that all of those stories are not foreign or alien. They're not someone else's stories. These are your stories. Stories that God wants to be part of your personal folklore. Things that you can lean on and claim in moments of despair and anxiety. Because the fact is, Jesus is doing exactly the same thing for you right now. Before you were born, before this country even existed, before you took a step or faced your first crisis, God knew you and he loved you and he went before so that you wouldn't have to walk this life alone. That none of us are venturing into the deep, dark, unknown all by ourselves. Our God has gone before and he has paved the way. So let me close with this reminder from Psalm. This is how he closes the Psalm. He says, and so Lord, in light of all of this, in light of this new divine perspective, this better way to understand all of the good things in the world and all of the scary, dangerous things in the world. He says, but give me this perspective. Satisfy me each morning with your unfailing love so that I may sing for joy to the end of my life. Give me gladness in proportion to my former misery. Replace the evil years of my life with good ones. And may the Lord our God show me his kindness and his delight in me. And may he make my efforts successful. Yes, God, make my efforts successful. That's not just a hope and a plea. That is a promise that your life, your efforts will be successful. That you have exactly the right of pow- amount of power that you need to live a life of meaning and witness and joy because you and I both have a God who is before us and for us. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, I ask right now that your Holy Spirit would land powerfully in this place that each and every person here would be given your divine perspective through the power of your spirit in their hearts, that we would have an accurate understanding of exactly how much or how little you've called us to do. So Lord, reduce our anxiety by helping us limit the number of our days. Uh, Rescue us from despair by showing us the effective power you've given us to shape our lives. Lord, help us lock in the stories of your goodness that we've inherited. All your mighty deeds that have gone before so that we can trust your mighty deeds will continue here and now in each and every one of our lives. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Pathfinder Church Message Podcast. If you would like to hear more messages like this, hit the subscribe button. You can also find more resources at our website, pathfinderstl.org.